Rebecca, what are some of the ways in which even the most secular people act out impulses that conventionally are expressed in religion? Um, yeah, that's actually one of the um, tactics I take in the in the novel. It's, I think, one of the most uh, it's the ways I try to generate humor, in fact, uh, with these parallels. Um, I'll, mention, um, I'll mention three very, very briefly. Um, one is romantic love um, and uh, the kind of deification of the loved objects that can almost feel like a religious conversion uh, sometimes. And you know, with all of the world reconfigured around this one uh, creature who must love one back in return or one is damned, one is doomed, you know, and, and redemption, saving uh, rests entirely in that way that person regards you back, uh, do they love you back, has something of the religious about it, um, it can uh, have something of the irrational about it, which is often when you fall out of love, you know, it's like, it, it, it feels like you've been, um, what is it, you know, deprogrammed. What do they used to do with the Moonies? You would go and deprogrammed, deprogrammed yeah. right? It's like, you know, how could you have infused that creature with, with all of these supernatural qualities almost? So there's that. And to make that case for that, and I, I believe this to be true, um, actually, that the, to make the case for that, I give my... Uh, main protagonist, Cass Seltzer, a tormented love life. Uh, he is a terrible judge of women, um, whom he deifies, you know, who he just slathers with all sorts of uh, supernatural characters, uh, uh, characteristics, and it's, it's very sad. I make him suffer very much because of this. Um, and um, uh, the, uh, there is a character, it's one of his former girlfriends who comes bursting in uh, to his life while his uh, present love object, Lucinda Mandelbaum, is at a, a conference on game theory. And um, she, uh, this former girlfriend, is uh, uh, an anthropologist who's been doing research um, on Amazonian hunter-gatherers. And she has, thinks she has discovered the secret to immortality. And she's retired from academia. And she started a nonprofit called the Immortality Foundation, and she's going to achieve, um, if not immortality, a very long life. She says anything less than 500 years is barbaric. Um, that uh, you know, through biochemistry, through popping lots of vitamins and antioxidants, and she's reprogramming her uh, her body so that you know, to achieve immortality. And I I do think that fear of death is one of the primary. Uh, religious impulses. Um, and last, briefly, um, is the kind of um, charis that certain figures um, can become charismatic and they can seem to be channeling truth from on high. Um, and you find these figures not just in religious contexts, but you find them in secular contexts. Indeed, you can find them in the bastions of rationality. You can find them in universities. Um, and these kind of self-declared, almost messianic figures um, who have their disciples, also known as graduate students, um, <laughs> you know, who take everything that these figures, you know, and I've, I've watched this time and time again in academia. 
Um, and every time this figure changes his or her, sometimes they're women, usually men, um, changes his opinion about something. All of the graduate students, you know, change their opinion about something. And that is, uh, that is, that is something that I think, um, again, has something of the religious hanging around it, and I satirize it uh, viciously uh, in, in, in the novel. Um, off religion now and onto science, but um, through an odd avenue perhaps, because I'd like to take advantage of having on the platform two world experts, one on Spinoza and the other on Darwin, and um, the lives of those two men didn't overlap. Uh, Spinoza died in 1677 and Darwin didn't have the foresight to be born until 1809 but they did overlap in their deep interest in science and um, I'd like to know whether Spinoza in any way anticipated modern science and has Darwinian science turned out to look like that? I suspect that the answers could reveal some really interesting aspects of um, modern science and of the huge progress that scientific method has made since Spinoza's time. So first, Rebecca, what might Spinoza have thought of Darwin's science? Mm. So Spinoza was very eager to eliminate all um, argument from design, uh, He all what we call teleological explanation. Um, and, you know, he, he thinks that this is very, very bad uh, model for explanation that the world was created or that any features of the world should be explained in terms of the goal that they meet. I mean, he thinks that this is delusional. Um, and he also felt very strongly, and so in that sense, he would like Darwin, right? He also believed, and this is the deepest intuition in Spinoza, that um, all facts ultimately have an explanation, that there's no what we call brute contingency, uh, that a fact mm -hmm. is a fact because it happens to be a fact. And so even the laws of nature must ultimately have an explanation. There must be a re it's not a matter of just tracing uh, things back to the fundamental laws of nature, but that these laws of nature themselves can't be brute contingencies, that they must have an explanation. So this is a very, it's what his slightly younger contemporary Leibniz called the principle of sufficient reason. Um, he really stole it and did not give proper attribution uh, from Spinoza, um, he, that this, this is the deep axiom in Spinoza's very weird book, uh, the, the Ethics, uh, that all facts have explanation. Um, and this is what leads him to say that ultimately um, everything must be necessarily true, um, that the laws of nature uh, must be necessarily true. If we had the final theory of everything, which is basically what he means by God, the final theory of everything. This is why I've had recently some uh, string theorists that tell me that when they read my book, they realized that they were Spinozists because they believe there is a final theory of everything which will explain everything, including why that final theory has to be that final theory. But he believed that ultimately the model for explanations, since he's spurning teleology, must come from mathematics because mathematics, in a mathematical proof, you're showing that everything is necessary and that ultimately 
that is the only kind of explanation that would satisfy this axiom of um, the, uh, the, uh, the, the principle of sufficient reason, that everything has an explanation. So there are two intuitions worrying there with, within Spinoza. The deeper intuition is that good explanations. And that leads me to say, you know, he had no way of ever foreseeing uh, a Darwinian explanation, which offers beautiful explanations, but they're not mathematical explanations. It's a different model of, of, of explanation. Um, so I would like to think that he would welcome Darwinian explanation. It depends which of those intuitions of his goes the deeper. Um, I, I think it was, you know, his sense of what a good explanation is, and his only model for that was mathematics. Darwin offered a different model, um, and I and I think that Spinoza would be intellect enough to appreciate that. So, but but who knows? Yeah, Would you there, like to talk about that yeah there, cer there certainly is a tension in, uh, I guess, the aesthetics of explanation between a <coughs> Spinozist approach that there, there are some equations, you crank them through, and you deduce why the world is the only way it could be, and the massive contingency uh, of, a, uh, of historical explanations in sciences like uh, evolutionary biology and maybe to some extent uh, cosmology, where accidents perhaps ultimately due to quantum fluctuations or at least things so small you can't measure them and predict them could have massive consequences. And the, the Darwinian style of explanation has contingency at two levels. One, the source of, of variation, namely mutations, where it just depends on which cosmic ray hit which DNA base in a particular organism and evolution could have gone this way or that way in a particular lineage and also at a more macroscopic level, the particular ecological circumstances that define the adaptive landscape that, that organisms uh, traverse. Uh, as Stephen Jay Gould put it, in the, really the essence of uh, evolutionary biology is that if you, could wind, if you could rewind the tape of history and play the history of life again, the, or, the organisms that evolve presumably would be different. So unlike what, if I understand it, the Spinoza's dream would be that you work through some equations and you can deduce that there are, you know, warthogs and broccoli and slime molds and, and, and no, you know, that absurd. seems very yeah. unlikely. It seems absurd, yes. Uh, and I think that that, uh, although I, I tend to agree that the fact that even with this admission of contingency, there is a great deal of elegance in uh, the in uh, Darwinian theory with the, the modern synthesis that perhaps he uh, if he were born today, another kind of rewinding the tape of history, yeah. he might be perfectly happy with it. Well, of course he would. It. I mean, he would have to be. I mean, he, he understood a good explanation when he saw it, you know. But so. I, interestingly, there, I think that there are still people who have a, a visceral dislike of uh, the theory of natural selection. And I think from at least Spinozist emotions, if not from Spinozist arguments. So it's my former colleagues at MIT Noam Chomsky and mm. Jerry Fodor, uh, just can't stomach the theory. Yeah. And uh, Fodor has recently written a book arguing preposterously that there's an elementary philosophical flaw that the entire discipline of biology has overlooked, which he is going to now educate them uh, about. Yeah. Uh, this position has been savaged both by evolutionary biologists and by Fodor's fellow philosophers. 
Yeah. And you wonder why a smart person like Fodor could be, could put forward such a preposterous argument. And I think it is ultimately the aesthetic of what an explanation looks like. Yeah. For, for a certain mindset, it has to be deduced from first principles and it, the way it is is the only way that it could be. And I think one of the revolutions of Darwin was to say you can have an elegant explanation that doesn't look like that, that has lots and lots of contingency, but nonetheless uh, very deep explanations. Yeah, yeah. I mean, one of the interesting things, and when I take it up as a, as a novelist, that's always very interesting to, um, to work out, is that those of us who think for a living, uh, who care about ideas, um, we, we, we have a kind of personality, al almost the way liberals and conservatives do, so that different um, uh, intuitions about far-flung uh, subject matters are somehow linked up uh, because your basic orientation is a certain way. And I think this does define certain philosophers. I mean, do they need the, their taste in explanation of what counts as a good explanation? Um, can, can they... Uh, tolerate a certain degree of, 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 of just contingency. It, it, it just happened this way. And uh, so, yeah. <laughs> but they tolerate an awful lot of bad argument in putting that through. Yes, that yes, forward. yeah. And I think because it goes so very deep down, mm. it is, it is a, it's a deep intuition and, and it, it has to be worked out. And it makes them very dissatisfied with certain kinds of explanation. Mm. Well, on bad arguments, just a brief question before we open it to uh, the audience to ask questions. Um, a question about British and American culture. Um, in your book, the famous professor in the book, whom you deftly named Clapper, is a purveyor of utter claptrap on an industrial scale. <laughs> um, and in the USA, he's widely lauded and adored, and though admittedly not universally so, some people see through him. But apparently, the British are not at all taken in by this clapper trap. So, um, is this just a plot device, or does it reflect a difference that you've actually observed <laughs> between American British culture? Well, that was before and I spent so, all where this have you time. Come across it? <laughs> so that was before I spent all this time in Britain. Discovered they're just as irrational as we oh. are. Right? No, no, no. <laughs> um, it, uh, yes, he is the extreme distinguished, extreme distinguished professor of faith, literature, and values. They had a university had to make it, uh, a new department uh, just for him, and he's the sole member of the department, um, which is a good thing because, of course, he can't tolerate his colleagues. So, um, And he is, um, you know, he's just a, a mountain of, as you say, claptrap and of um, pomposity and self-mythologizing grandiosity. And... Um, and he's revered the world over, but as he always repeats, because it's such a thorn in his side, except in Britain. Um, and uh, the reason I, well, I wanted there to be some place, and I, I do have maybe a, a inflated respect for Britain. I, I mean, you'd say something yes, that. you know, I mean, it's just, uh, I love their literature, I love their philosophers. And so, um, but the other thing about, Clapper is that although he was born on the Lower East Side of New York, he has somehow acquired a British accent, um, <laughs> <laughs> as you often find um, in uh, in the U.S. And I mean, maybe he spent a summer here. It was enough. He, he got the accent, and I somehow felt, you know, that 
the Brits would be sensitive to that uh, and realize it wasn't, a, it wasn't the real thing and, and therefore read his work with a little more skepticism. Right. So it was, a, it was playing, I was paying a national compliment. <laughs> I was hoping that we Yes. <laughs> well, thank you to both of you for that. And I'd now like to open up the questions to the floor. And do put up your hand if you'd like to ask a question. There are just a few ground rules. Wait until the roving mic gets to you before you start speaking. And please state your name, and unless you prefer not to do so, where you're from. And please, please be brief. So questions, right? Okay, I'm going to start right up there. Yes, with you. Yes. Um, hello, can everyone hear me? Yeah. Start with your name. Uh, yeah, I'm Dean Peters from the LSE Philosophy Department. Um, so one thing that kind of came up perif peripherally was um, people's uh, emotional need for religion. And the one that came up a little bit, which I'm kind of most interested in, is the, especially the need for community. And so I've been kind of observed anecdotally that often people will almost, in a sense, shop around for churches. Right? And what they, it seems like what they're looking for is they're not looking for a particular theological perspective. What they're looking for is the right sort of community. Now, what brief, worries... Brief, please. Yeah, yeah. So what, what worries me about that is... <coughs> Is that something that currently only religious institutions can provide? Right? Is that particularly there's a community, it's regular, it meets regularly, um, the entire community can meet, and it's a very emotional um, experience. And it seems like, the, especially if the harder your life is, the more you need that sort of experience. Um, and is that something that only religion can currently provide, and should we be looking for alternatives? Thank you. Thank you. Um, and religions do provide that. It's a very, very important service that they provide. Um, I think other places can provide it. I mean, I've always felt, you know, being actually a part of an academic community is, uh, um, is, a good, is a good thing. I don't feel the need for a religious community, and maybe that's why we, we spawn so many non-believers. Uh, it's not just that we're smarter, uh, but that um, we have community of, of people who, you know, we kind of get. We speak the same language, shared values. I don't mind if my daughters date the sons of fellow professors for the most part. Um, but it's, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's a community. And um, I do think that those, you know, if the, those who, who, who wish that secularism uh, spread, um, that it's incumbent on them to, to, to provide alternative communities. Communities also for good works. Um, I was very, very happy. Steve and I are both um, on the board of Sam Harris's Project Reason. Um, and during the uh, Haiti catastrophe, um, we were able to contribute through through that, through this secular uh, organization. And I, I think that that sort of thing, soup kitchens, you know, visiting hospitals, um, visiting people who are in grief and are, are mourning, um, all of those needs, uh, you know, ought to be, have to be met uh, if, if, if people are not going to be seeking it in religion. Now, frankly, it doesn't, doesn't bother me so much that people do seek it in religion, um, as, as long as it's moderate religion, religion that's able to entertain self-doubt. Uh, next questions? Um, over here and up there for the next one. Okay, you're, you're the next one after that. Hi, um, my name's Rob. I'm a PhD student at Birkbeck. 
Um, I noticed looking around the world, uh, many religions, but not all, have a redeemer god. And the life histories of these redeemer gods are remarkably similar. They tend to be born of virgins. They um, tend to come back to redeem our sin. Even often, they have similar words about them, that they're the sun, the light bringer. Um, do you think this uh, reflects an underlying psychological need? And if, if so, what? <laughs> we want to be redeemed. <laughs> um, no, yeah, I mean, so even, you know, the... Uh, the popularity of the virgin figure, um, you know, this is recurs over and over again, you know, and I think controlling our the, or, or, uh, um, that that emotion of disgust that I spoke at uh, about before uh, that seems to be uh, very prevalent in in religions and um, feeling some shame at our own bodily needs, uh, including um, sexuality, and there's. It's not an accident that women are very controlled uh, in in religion, uh, and you know the more fundamentalist it is, the more controlled the women are. They're often covered. Um, in my own, uh, I, I grew up in a very religious household. I ought to say, um, and in you know in my family, uh, you know the women, you know their hair is all covered. They they're very very covered. Um, I think that is something that that you find you know recurring, uh, but also you know. Wanting to be a, a a good person and uh, and and knowing that we fail and and wanting to feel fail feel that there is some way that we're forgiven uh, and that we can redeem ourselves. I mean this this is a good thing. I mean our moral sense is a very good thing, and I think guilt is a very good thing. That's one of the, I think a good emotion um, that can be have completely secular uh, counterparts. Um, but our, our dis-ease with that guilt, our dis-ease with our, our constantly failing to live up to our own ideals um, can be eased in these stories and is eased in, in these stories. I mean, God dying for our sins is one of the sweetest <laughs> stories that uh, we can tell ourselves. Yeah. <coughs> I, I think that a lot of these archetypes, which you do find in, in a number of religions, although probably no single one is found in all religions, um, I suspect that there's a, a large pool of human thought patterns and yearnings and that particular religions draw subsets from them, often overlapping sub subsets. Uh, so, and, so indeed the, 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 re the sacrificed and reborn son of the divine recurs, although it wouldn't be found in 100% of religions either. What you do common. find always is a kind of blending, a, a, a mythological narrative, which does justice to our sense of mystery in the world. I mean, they're always very mysterious uh, narratives that combine cosmology and morality. Uh, it's, it's, I, I think that's almost universal in all of these um, uh, religions. Um, there was somebody up there next. And just put your hands up over here so I can see. Okay. Would you like to be after that? You after that. Yes. I am Sal Corral. I'm a visiting artist from the United States. Um, my question deals with um, the parallel or polar concepts between uh, Newtonian type uh, science, uh, the idea that there is a fundamental uh, origin of understanding um, a sufficient reason concept, as explained, um, and the more modern concept of the chaos theory, 
And within those two things, I see sort of a parallel within with order and chaos, which is a, a primary concept in uh, a lot of religions. A lot of religions, their origin begins with order coming from chaos. And my question is, what really separates the concept of chaos theory from the supernatural? Actually, yeah, um, chaos theory is actually a very deterministic theory. I think the word is somewhat misleading. Um, it really means that you know very small uh, um, initial, conditions. initial conditions can permeate and have uh, great effects throughout the system. So, in fact, uh, chaos theory is 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 not at all um, in in opposition to to strict determinist law by laws of nature uh, determined uh, physics. And somebody over here, yes. Um, we all seem to be dancing around this topic of the, the God-shaped hole, to use Rush's term. And I was thinking, you know, this atheism is a bit of a dirty term. I think one of the reasons is that we haven't put anything back in this hole. So I'm a 50-year-old woman. I meet, you know, relatives and friends from school who are 50 year old and it's all crystals and new wave um, new age novels and stuff. I mean it's so embarrassing um, I don't have a problem being an atheist but I do spend a lot of time writing in my you know uh, journal intime my personal diary and I'm beginning to buy it you know nice leather covered books and I'm getting quite worried this is probably my replacement for God and one of the criticisms or let me put it as a question to you as a philosopher what can you provide to replace this big hole that you've dug? <laughs> <laughs> this is this. Yes. Well, I, I think you're buying books. I wouldn't be very surprised if you could not. <laughs> <laughs> um, you, you know, I, I suppose that, again, this is one of those um, very. Uh, um, individualist uh, answers, very individual answers, that it all, that it's very, see, I don't feel a whole at all. You know, it's when people. You're at, you've got Harvard, sort of. <laughs> <laughs> well, all those things, that is, uh, what there is, is, I mean, I, I can only answer it very personally, and I suppose all of it, it really depends on your personal psychology, but for me, what there is, is, um, trying to figure out what this world is like. I mean, it's a tantalizingly uh, complicated, intricate world. Can I... There are personal relationships. Just, add, sort of, just make it very specific. Yeah. I think the things that these people are looking for are love and understanding. Yes. So somebody who listens to them once their husband doesn't anymore. And um, yes. a sense of purpose, you know, there must be some reason it must fit together somehow. Yes, yes, Those actually, are the two things. I think that's true. And the, um, that's one of my arguments, the arguments from, you know, a personal purpose. Uh, and I think that that's a, one of the arguments that I think is fallacious. I think it's number 17. Um, and, uh, but, but I think it is a strong need that we have. Um, I think part of it is uh, comes from, and probably again from evolution. It all 
does come from evolutionary psychology, but we all matter so very much to ourselves. I mean, the, for each of us, the world revolves around us, and uh, everybody else is, is, we're always playing the central role, and everybody else is playing a bit part. Um, and I think that there is uh, the tendency to try to construct a view of the world that will do justice to that. I think that's another one of the, the needs that is met in religion, that we are as cosmically important um, as we feel ourselves to be, and we're just not. <laughs> we're just not. Uh, and nothing that we can say, no other, I mean, these mythologies can do this for us, and I think that's one of the deepest powers of them, uh, that it can do justice to our own sense of self-importance. Um, but it's a lie, um, I think. And so, and nothing's going to quite take that place. Uh, but I think that that's what it is to grow up. Uh, and, and, and to just accept that fact. We are not the center of the universe. Uh, we are... Was that an applause? Well, why don't we end with that? <laughs> Just one very quick last question. Be very brief, please. Thank you. Um, my name is Aidy. I'm, I'm going to do it very briefly. I was surprised by one of your initial remarks about religion um, needing to be eradicated. The argument, I was part surprised because part of the argument um, of those that think that religion is wrong is that it poses an ultimate truth that um, others should believe. And wouldn't this argument, or wouldn't what you just said be using the same, um, couldn't this argument be applied to the criticism with, to eradicating religion in terms of um, if people need to, if we need to eradicate religion, isn't that the same posture of saying um, there is a God? Isn't the same argument used reversely yeah. in needing to eradicate yeah. all well, expressions of faith? I, I don't. I. I, I actually. I, I. If I said that we need to eradicate religion, and then I said something that I don't believe, um, I. I don't think that we. First of all, there can only be said. There can only be an ought if it's possible, right? You can only have, and it, it's not possible. Religion serves too many needs, and it's. It, it's not going to be eradicated, uh, and. I actually, um, and I, I suppose it comes out in the book, I, I have a great deal of sympathy uh, for those who seek religious communities and for those who, it's very hard to be a human being. Uh, we need a lot of support. Um, and I have, I can understand uh, trying to deal with our existential dilemmas in, in uh, the context of a religious community. Um, so it's, it's what has worried us in the U.S. is the erosion of the wall between private religion and public policy. And I think that's had one of the reasons that there's been this pushback uh, by atheists. Uh, decisions being made about stem cell research, about, about uh, gay marriage, uh, that is going to affect all of us and it's, being, it's coming from uh, religious point of view. So, I mean, that's the sort of thing I think, you know, absolutely we can't compromise on. But um, all of us have to wrestle with these questions and these dilemmas for ourselves. Uh, and uh, I, I, 
as individual as psychology is, that's how individual uh, these solutions are going to be. So I, I do not, I, you may feel differently, um, but I am not in favor of the eradication of, of religion as if that were a possibility anyway. Yeah, no, <clears throat> I agree, and I think it's an, it's an important enough point that I'm going to say it in my own words, but really to, to, uh, to reinforce what Rebecca said. I, as a thoroughgoing atheist, would not have a desire to, as, as you put it, eradicate religion. I think it's important to come to the best collective understanding that we can about the nature of the world and the nature of morality and justice. And that will often require uh, overturning long-held religious beliefs but religions themselves, as social institutions, have obviously evolved, thank goodness. A lot of the uh, way all of the major religions are practiced now is very different from the way they were practiced 100 years ago, 1,000 years ago, 2,000 years ago. Thanks, thanks to the Enlightenment. Thanks to the Enlightenment, thanks to pressure from uh, secular reason. There's no reason why that couldn't occur, and all of the things that are valuable about religion, that, that uh, they are places for people to meet, their forums for ethical discussion can continue to exist, but as long as we doesn't, it doesn't entail that we indulge propositions about the world that our uh, best reason indicates are, are incorrect, or moral arguments that our best moral reasoning uh, indicate are indefensible. Well, sadly, it's time to draw this event to a close, and I'd like to thank the audience for coming along and being so appreciative and so stimulating. You can get copies of both Rebecca's and Steve's books right outside this lecture theatre, and then, if you would like them to sign the books, the stewards will show you how to come up here to the platform where they'll be sitting here to sign the book on the stage. They'll be happy to sign them. And finally, I'm sure that you want to join with me in offering our very sincere thanks to both Rebecca and Steve for an immensely... <laughs>